Last night, something unusual happened to me uh, that doesn't really happen all that often. I had been sitting down in the basement uh, with a couple of the wise gents, and we were watching uh, part of Star Trek II uh, Wrath of Khan. And, well, they had never seen it, and I was trying to expose them to culture. <laughs> and so I got up out of the seat, and immediately there was this shooting pain down my right side, and my right leg, you know, couldn't move. And I was walking like this, and it was the oddest thing in the world. Have you ever had anything like that? Some of you who are older are like, hmm, yeah. Well, I remember at age 20, when Jenny and I turned like 21, we used to go on this overnight thing with the band that we were in, and we still lived in Wheaton. I was in graduate school, so I was still doing the band um, at Wheaton College as a grad student, and and we went to do the overnight thing, and, and two hours into it, after most everybody had gone to bed, you know, she came and found me, and she's like, I can't do this. I'm like, I can't either. Let's go home to our own bed. Yes. Okay, and, you know, because we had gotten older. And then I noticed, like, well, hey, it happens, you know. And then I noticed when I hit 30, like, some, it was like somebody took a knob on my energy level and just bumped it back two notches. And then I noticed no one warned me, but when I hit 40... It wasn't just two notches. It was like four. You know, I used to, when Jenny and the kids would go to bed, I would work from like 10 at night to about 1, 1.30 in the morning, and I'd get a lot of reading and studying. Do you know what happens now if I try and read and study? And then somebody's, Max, just go to bed. Thought I was in bed. <laughs> studying. Resting in the Lord. Um, Here's the thing. I'm dying. That's my problem. You're dying too. Only we don't talk about it ever. It's the weirdest thing in American culture. It's the last taboo subject. I mean, you can access porn more than you can access stuff about death. Um, In fact, uh, I I was was online. I was looking at, because I'm a history buff, uh, I was looking at a series of uh, daguerreotypes. I can't, I can't never pronounce that word right. It was the earliest photographs, okay, they, uh, uh, from the mid to late 1800s. And apparently what families would do back then is when you would have a baby that would die, you would bring in the photographer and take a picture of your dead ba- you holding your dead baby. Can you believe this? People, this was normal. But this is in America, okay? And they would do this. They would take pictures of their special someone in the coffin. And you know what they would do? They would prominently display those photos in their parlor as kind of as if they needed to be reminded that death was universal, okay? You know, with the infant mortality rate and whooping cough and everything else that would strike. And and they would do these things. And and, uh, the writer for this Time article said that... um, in, he had a difficult time getting this book published because so many publishers refused to do it because it was about death. <laughs> They're like, well, that's not going to sell. Nobody's going to be interested in that. And uh, we don't talk about death. And, and I think part of the reason that, that we respond so viscerally to it is because while we acknowledge it's universal, we somehow think we're going to beat it. When it comes to us, 
we somehow think that we're going to outlast, we're going to outlive, we're going to have, you know, six breaths longer than everyone else. And, and this kind of, and it's easy because when you're a teenager, you really are immortal. You can do anything, jump off cliffs, stay all night, up all night, three nights in a row. I mean, you can do anything to your body virtually, and it's indestructible. At least it seems that way. And then as you get older and older, it's kind of like gentle reminders of, oh, this thing's breaking down. Stink! You know, <laughs> and so... Uh, I want to I wade into that today, and so today is a little bit more of a serious thing than uh, you're used to getting from me, but I, I think the reason that, that we respond the way we do to death is because there's something in us that longs for what's lasting, for what's everlasting, for what's eternal, and that's not by accident. I think this is the same reason that crazy, weird people like Hitler and Stalin do what they do. I mean, part of the reason, part of the reason is they're just insane, Okay. But another part is this drive to do something big and significant. Um, some men will, will work hard and, and tr- do amazing things throughout their career because they want to do something kind of everlasting. Some people will give like huge sums of money to a college or a university in hopes that there will be a building with, guess what? The Vanderpool Center for Excellence. Oh! And so when I die, at least that name's going to be on there on that building, dadgummit. You know, it's, something's going to last. Something's going to outlast me if I don't last. And I think that's part of what's woven in there, in you and in me. Um, we try and satisfy that longing and that drive with the weirdest ways in America, don't we? I mean, if you think about it, we Americans on a whole, as a whole, as a culture, we're eating ourselves to death. I mean, food is one of our biggest you know, everlasting substitutes that we turn to. And us pastors, we're not, we're not, you know, free from it from time to time. You know, I'm feeling a little down or discouraged, you know, that bowl of ice cream. And you get the buzz or the dullness of that ache after the first bowl or the second bowl. And then, you know, the next morning is the regret and everything else. Oh, I shouldn't have ate that. And, you know. and the, that feeling, that ache is still there. And food doesn't solve it. Sex won't kill it. I mean, again, you, you know, the euphoria of the moment, and then, boom, it's gone. The next day or the day later, that ache is back, that drive, that wanting to have something that's going to last, that, that wanting something more is in there. And, and that's a God thing that's in there. A.W. Tozer, a. W. Tozer, who was truly a prophet, preached 60 years ago. This is what he, he had to say. He said, men will rebuild muscle cars. And they'll put all this time and energy, and they'll speed down the highway at ferocious speeds, doing things that are dangerous. And in the moment, driving down the road, they'll feel better. They'll f- that, that, that ache will go away. But all the while, and he puts it this way, all the while their soul is weeping itself to death. And so I want to wade into today this idea of everlasting. And to do so, I want to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to do a verse-by-verse walkthrough of, I think, one of the most profound theological statements in the Bible, um, and it's also one of the most freeing set of statements in the Bible, okay? And, and it's found in John chapter 1. This, this gospel uh, was written somewhere between 70 and 100 AD from Ephesus. Uh, it was written for non-Jewish readers, so when you're reading John's gospel... Um, he explains weird Jewish customs. He's like, now here's why they did this. And in words that were in Aramaic, he'll translate into Greek because he wants his Greek readers to kind of go with the flow and understand what's going on. And this section here, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to verse 18, theologians like to call the prologue. 
It's kind of like Star Wars, you know, the very first thing. Dun, 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 in, long, long ago in a galaxy far. You know, it's that part right there. That's what this is in John's Gospel. And so uh, let's just wade into it. In the beginning, in the beginning, the Word already existed. He was with God, and He was God. In the beginning, in the beginning. In the beginning doesn't refer to God. In the beginning refers to in the beginning of the universe. God predates in the beginning, doesn't He? God doesn't end. God's everlasting. God's eternal. And this phrase is important, and it's important for a couple of reasons. Um, and to do that, I, wa- I want to wade into a couple of other places where you'll find it. The f- and don't flip there. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to read it to you. In Psalm, this same little, this same little phrase is were used, word is used. Lord, through all generations you've been our home. Before the mountains were created, before the, you made the earth and the world, you are God without beginning or end. Without beginning or end. In the beginning. Okay, as far as the east is from the west, and then in Ecclesiastes, all right? I'd never caught this until I I was doing this devotional stuff in John. This is what it says. God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the hearts of men. He has planted eternity in the human heart. He has put everlastingness in you and in me. It's by design. It's in there. Because you're created and I'm created in God's image. We weren't meant to break down and die. We weren't. That's not part of God's plan or purpose for people. It was relationship. It was family relationship. Period. That wouldn't end, that wouldn't break down, that wouldn't, you know, no termination point. Okay? So in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and was God. He was in the beginning God. Verse 3, He created everything there is. Nothing exists He didn't make. Life itself was in Him, and this light gives light to everyone. The Word, the Word is not a created being. The Word is God. You ever, have you ever gone out on a clear winter night when it's like just butt-kicking cold? And you can see a gazillion stars. I mean, you have to get out far enough from the city to really see them. Have you ever done that and just gone out and looked at all the, the stars? And, and, start, and just let your mind go, and you start thinking how big the universe really is. And if, you don't, if you're not sure, go to Hubble.com. And the NASA scientists, the good folks at NASA, now that they don't have as many shuttles to send up, they have all kinds of information there for you and me. It's just amazing how ginormous the universe is. God made that. And you and I are these little itty-bitty tiny... I mean, we're not even dots, okay? I mean, when you think about it, that God, that God was the Word, okay? Through Him, everything that was made. And, and so something that is important to draw out of this verse is, is this. If, if, the, if, if everything was made through the Word, then does God really need anything that the universe has to offer Him? I mean, think about that for a minute. Does God need, you know, Pluto or Jupiter or Earth or all of us on Earth? No, he did. God is 100% self-sufficient. He's 100%, he has everything he needs, the Godhead does. And so God doesn't need you or me, yet God chooses to love us. God chose to create us, and God wants 
you and me to be united with him, to be in fellowship with him. Uh, but it's not a need, okay? And then uh, look at verse 5. The light shines through the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And then there's this little interlude about John the Baptist. We're going to pick it up at verse uh, 10. But although the world was made through him, okay, again, the, the word, the world, everything was made through the word, but although the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him when he came. Even in his own land and among his own people, he was not accepted. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They're reborn. It's not a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan. This rebirth comes from God. This belief thing that John's talking about, um, and we're going to wade into this over the next couple of months, um, this belief is more like a reliance. It's more like confidence. Um, it's one thing to say, I believe in Santa Claus. It's another thing to not buy any Christmas gifts whatsoever, and on the night you go to bed, absolutely be confident there are going to be gifts there the next morning. That's kind of the, the, the confidence when the Bible talks about believe, that's what the Bible's talking about. That kind of confidence, that kind of reliance. Faith is the word that typically gets used, but that's really what they're talking about, confidence and reliance. And, and so if you're confident in Jesus and what God has done through Jesus, it, it kind of takes care of everything else. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's that kind of faith that makes it right, that, that God makes you right with him. And we're going to wade into that. Um, but I, I wanted to take a moment, and, and I wanted this morning as we began 2010 to kind of come back to this passage. This is a, really a Christmas passage that doesn't get preached on or talked about a lot. Everybody loves the Luke too, you know and the shepherds abiding in their fields at night. But this is really a Christmas passage. This is about Christmas. This is about God becoming one of us. And the kicker is verse 14. And so, uh, and this is what it says. So the word, the word, this word from everlasting to everlasting, eternal God, this word, through this word, everything was made. The word became human and lived here on earth among us, and he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. I want to let you in on something about the Christian faith that you and I say we subscribe to. In a lot of ways, it defies logic. I mean, seriously, navel gaze one night, just take a moment and try and think about, okay, infinite God became a person. Now, how does that work? And became a person so that we could be made right with him again, and God could restore his family, huh? I mean, it defies logic, it defies science, it defies what reasonable people would believe. It does. In, in a lot of very, way, very real ways, it does. But it's the only thing, Jesus Christ, the Word, is the only thing that's going to satisfy that everlasting craving that you have on the inside of you. Here's, here's the thing. Um, I think so many of us in America, because our culture has gone so far off track in, in, in some ways, I believe so many of us, even though we say we, we believe in God and, and, we, and we come and cheer him on a Sunday, so to speak, I, I, believe we're not, I, I don't think we really believe that Jesus is fully God when we talk about him, when you think about it. Um, because if we did, that everlasting thing that everlasting quotient would be more. We wouldn't necessarily be turning 
to the ice cream or the other kinds of things that we turn to to kind of dull that sense. You know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, and so in 2010, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to start off by suggesting that perhaps uh, 2011, rather, that 2011 would be the year. Yeah, thank you. I know you're all, they told me in leader worship, it's 2011, Max. And so there you go. See, I, you know, I, I can't always remember everything right. In 2011, that's the year we're in, that this year for you, it would be the year of Jesus Christ. It would be the year of the word. It would be a year in which what Jesus came to bring would be true in your life. There are three words that come up in this prologue, three very important words, life, light, and truth. The word brings life, light, and truth. And when you're going to substitutes for the word, when you're going to substitutes for the everlasting, you don't get light, light and truth, you get death. I mean, the opposite of, of life is death. And you don't get light, you get darkness. And you don't get truth, you get falsehood and lies. Those are awful substitutes. They won't give you what you want. They won't give your soul what your soul is longing for. Um, and so these are some things that I've been chewing on and wrestling with. And, and I, you know, in some ways this isn't done cooking, but I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to present this to the body this morning because uh, I've really been doing a lot of navel-gazing lately. I guess you could say I've been, I've been in John, John's gospel over the holidays. And I don't want to be turning to substitutes in my life anymore. I don't want you to be turning to substitutes. And, and this thing in me that craves the everlasting, I want it to be satisfied with the everlasting. And over the next couple of months, we're actually going to talk about practical, real, real deal pathways that you can take to live the life that really, if you, if you could sit down with God, it's the life you want to live. It's the, it's the life God wants you to live. And, and they're different. They're a little different because not all of us are the same. Anytime you go to a church and, and they tell you, There's, this, is the, this is the formula. If you do these six things this way, it works 100% of the time, guaranteed. Eh. Just read the Bible sometimes. Uh, read, read the Bible sometime and through the lens of how many times does God do something the same way? He doesn't. I mean, it's just, boom. he does it differently all the time. It's weird the way it works. Okay? So, Practical application, all right? If you could have a New Year's resolution, if I could have a say in one of them, it would be this. Resolve to quit the remedies that the world offers. Resolve to quit going to cheap substitutes to satisfy that eternal craving that's in you, whether it's food or sex or I don't care what it is, that, that you know what, I'm going to stop. And, and I understand you'll fall off the bandwagon, I may fall off the bandwagon, but like anything... Any good resolve, uh, resolve to, to satisfy it with what is going to satisfy, and that is Jesus. And, and the second thing uh, would be this. Read the Gospels. In the next couple of months, just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Seriously. And read it through this lens. If what John says is true, if Jesus is really God, and if, and if, and if Jesus is God, okay, that's what the Bible is claiming, then we have, God, uh, we have a record of God living among us. You want to know what God thinks? How God treats people? What's important to him? Look into the life of Jesus. 
read the Gospels through that lens. What can I learn about what God really cares about, about what angers him, about what he's passionate about, what his purposes are, just by reading the Gospels? I mean, huge things could unfold and open for you. Um, I believe this is important because I believe in our culture, I think we've made our God too small. I, I really do. I think for a lot of us in America, we think of God as kind of this old guy at the, at the old person's home who's kind of in a rocking chair, you know? And, and, and we come in, hey, God, man, I'm running late today. Could I just, the next six stoplights, if you could just make them green. Oh, it's so great to see you, son. Oh, I'd be happy. Boom. <laughs> come back. Hope to see you Sunday, you know, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? We, we kind of have this, we, we have this sense that he's this kindly guy and, 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 you know, he understands what life is like and he understands it's hard and God knows we're not perfect and all of that. And, you know, surely he gets it even when our mothers don't and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, but this is everlasting God. I mean, this is eternal. This is the guy who made the universe. And, and it's much, much more than I think we've given him credit for. So there you go, some thoughts on the Gospel of John today. As I said, it's not a conventional sermon the way you're used to, but if it hits you where you are, if it does anything good, all the better. Uh, I want to pray for you, and while we're praying, I'm going to ask our musicians to come up.